Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. John 5, 19-30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever were, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And you guys can grab a seat. This is a, a really fun section of scripture because it's one of those ones when you're preparing, like if you have any Baptist in you, you're going to really appreciate this because this, this text just kind of runs down with points. It's like, it just kind of gives it to you. Like, here's your sermon outline, and here's what we're going to talk about. So this is a really, really interesting kind of section of scripture where Jesus starts claiming the things that the apostle John has already proclaimed of him in chapter one. So he's going to start making the claims that they're at. And this is one of the hardest aspects, I think, for uh, for us to kind of come to a practical working out in our heads and our hearts. And I think those that maybe are outside the Christian faith, it's difficult for them as well because it, you have to deal with this idea and, and how to reconcile this idea that Jesus is equal to God yet still submitted to God. And that's, if you look at kind of the relationships that we have and, and, and the closest thing that we can see is, is we see in, in Ephesians it says, be, be mutually submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ. I feel like I'm a little hot. Can we pull me down just a little bit? Sorry, I feel like I'm going to pop. Sorry. Um, and in all those things, we, we see, that, we see that, that we're supposed to be mutually submitted to one another, but this idea, and, and that we are equal, but this idea of having one that is like fully above, yet still equal and submitted is something that's really hard for us to reconcile between God and, and Jesus. I don't really see anyone I'm with as them being God. That's not what we're talking about there. So it's hard for us to kind of figure out a, a kind of a practical working out of this. And really, this is the section that Jesus kind of claims in this, in this chapter. He, he leads us to a thinking that has nothing really to do with ethics, but everything to do with kind of proper theology. 
And so this text, although the, the proper theology will bring out the ethics and how we are to morally live in, in, in truth, in truth and in line with the scripture, this is just kind of a really kind of outline. Here's some heady stuff. Here's some theology and help us understand. And it's really kind of laid out. If you look at the way the text is laid out, he just has the, heals the, the man at Bethesda. We talked about that last week. And there's opposition. This is kind of the first outward direct opposition that comes from the religious leaders to Jesus. This text changes from like a dialogue to a monologue. And Jesus just kind of lays out his case. It's almost like he's on trial. And so he's standing there and saying, well, let me, let me state my case before you. And let me show you why what I did on the Sabbath was okay to be done. He started it last week. We talked about it. He says, I, the, my father's working and therefore I am working. And, and the, the religious leaders are upset because they're like, well, he just made himself equal to God. And this is where kind of the, all right, all right, jury, sit down, judge. Okay, let's, let's, let's have this conversation. And Jesus just dives in and it just kind of works through it this way. Um, Jesus kind of puts himself on the stand and states his case. And in this text, you see the, the word for, or if you're, depending upon which version you're using, because or moreover. And there are basically four fours that he uses that are kind of, hey, this is what I made the claim. This is why I said what I said. And let me show you how that happens. Each one has it. It starts with a truly, truly, or amen, amen. We've talked about this a few times, but it introduces kind of an emphatic, unarguable declaration is what Jesus is doing here. This is what I'm saying is true. You need to hear this. Pay attention. Everything is, is true. Um, the double meaning, kind of the, the four statements introduced by the Greek connecting for four is giving us the example as to why he can make these claims, why he's doing these things. So, so you basically get this long kind of section of here's how I want you to see that Jesus is equal to God but yet still fully man, and here's the ways why. So he kind of works it there. The first four is in verse 19. It reminds us that the Father is the model for the Son's activity. This is what he says. In verse 19, he says, Look, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus explained that his work was a perfect reflection of the work of God. What I'm doing is exactly in line, exactly what the Father is doing. The reason why I cured the one man in Bethesda, because that was the Father's will. Everything I'm doing is a perfect copy of him. Some scholars want to make this kind of a, um, an analogy or some kind of thing where the son is raised, the carpenter is raised up, but really that's, that doesn't equal the way it is, because what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I'm a perfect reflection. I'm not, I'm not some, I'm not some kind of like son that's trying to work up to being as good at the trade as my father, I am a perfect reflection of everything that he is. I do nothing independently. He was and is fully submitted to the father's will. And the submission of Jesus comes by choice, not coercion. So Jesus here is saying, it's interesting, they come and attack him, say he's made himself equal to God, and the first kind of defense he lays out is, but I'm fully submitted to God. They're saying, you've just claimed equality with God. He's saying, no, 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 I do nothing apart from the Father. Everything the Father does, I do. Everything I do is perfectly aligned in submission to the Father, to his will. One scholar says it this way. He says, the principal thrust of verse 19 is that whatever making himself equal with God might mean, for Jesus, it does not mean complete or even partial independence from the Father. The truth is that the son can do nothing by himself or better on his own initiative or from himself. Though he is the unique son of God and may truly be called God and take to himself divine titles and as in this context, divine rights, yet he is always submissive to the father. Not only does the son always do what pleases the father, 
but he can do only what he sees the Father is doing. And this isn't reciprocal. It's not that the Father is doing what this is. It's it's Jesus to the Father, yet they're equal. And this is why you and I and all of us struggle, and many people in the world struggle, like, wait, wait, Jesus is fully man and, and equal with God? This is the claim he says. And the second reason, the second four that he comes, identifies the basis of the son's dependence. Like, what's the basis for him doing this? He goes in, he says in verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will be shown to him so that you may marvel. The love of the father for the son is displayed in his continuous disclosure to giving Jesus the will of the father. The basis with which Jesus is operating perfectly under submission to God is because God loves the Son. It's based on his love. He's not, he's not apart from it. He's, he's, he's saying that the Son, the love of the Son for the Father is displayed in his perfect obedience. So what's interesting about this is if Jesus is only doing the will of the Father, but the Father isn't doing the will of the Son, but God's perfect love for the Son is reciprocal in the Son's perfect love for God, except they're displayed differently. The love that God has for the Son is continuing disclosure to him, giving him his will. The love that the Son has for the Father is complete obedience to him. This is why John says, if we want to, if we want to love God, we need to obey his commands. Jesus says, you want to remain in my love, abide in my love, and obey my commands, just as I obey my Father's commands. This is the love is what's compelling Jesus to do this. The love is doing this. Now, in this situation, in this context, it's really important for, for us to hear how the first century would have heard this. They're hearing something that is radically transformative to their, their religion and their outworking because for them, they had to keep these religious festivals. They had to keep these things to remain in the love. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 hold on a second. I'm doing these things because I'm loved. I'm doing these things because I'm loved. It's a big difference. If you're trying to earn love or you're just operating within the love you have. And so Jesus says, this is the basis. One scholar says that this, the love of the Father for the Son is one of the foundational building blocks of Christian theology. Some theories of atonement tend to minimize the pervading love of God when seeking to explain the reason for the death of Jesus. How could God love Jesus if he dies? How could he do that? For John, no theory of the atonement would be adequate that would treat lightly the love of God for the Son in dealing with the wrath of God. Failure to account satisfactorily for God's love for the Son can greatly damage our theological understanding of God's love for the people of the world. Inherent in the love of the Father is the desire of the Father to reveal the Son, all the activity of God. Verse 20, the the Greek word show that shows up twice is John's way of indicating the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus received direct insight from the Father and acted in accordance with the Father's will. The actions of Jesus, therefore, were the actions of the Father because in Jesus, the Father was, in fact, acting. One of the great heresies among Christians is to split Jesus from God in such a way that somehow God does not participate in the work and death of Jesus Christ. His love is displayed perfectly on Jesus. Everything that Jesus did, even to the cross, was in perfect submission and obedience to God's will. He does nothing apart from him. And so this is how Jesus can make these claims because he, he's resting in the love that God has for him. And he's showing the love that he has for God by submitting obediently, perfectly to everything that God wants. So when we see Jesus act in something, it's like it doesn't make sense. We, the one thing we can know for certain is that it's perfectly aligned to God's will. He's never one step ahead or behind or delayed. He is perfectly set inside the will of God. 
The third four in verse 21 is an illustration for the working dependence of the son. And this one's interesting because in 21 it says this. It says, For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Now, this would have been kind of that proverbial record-scratching moment for most of the Jews in the first century because every good Jew, even, even the ones that weren't in opposition to Jesus, knew that the, the only giver of life was God. God is the giver of life. He is the one that has that. He breathed life into the first man he created out of dust, Genesis 2. God is the giver of life. The only kind of per, like person that the rabbis and the teachings would go on to say, okay, well, there was Elijah, first kings, like there was, he did kind of do this, but they believe that he was acting as a servant of God, not that he had the power to do what he chooses. And Jesus says, I have life and I give it to whom I choose. That's a direct claim to God. There is nothing hidden about that. There's no like subtlety to it. It is a direct claim. Jesus is saying, I am God, I have life. And this is a really, really big deal. In the sacrificial system, in the covenants, in the, in the dietary laws, the blood was the symbol of life. Over and over again, we see this. This is why we, we say that we have life in the forgiveness of Jesus' blood being spilled. Life was in the blood. But to make a person live was the prerogative of God and God alone and those who acted on his behalf, like we saw Elijah. But Jesus isn't just a servant of God who acts for God like Elijah. Instead, in him was life, like John 1, 4 says. In him was life. Raising a person from the dead, therefore, was a sign of the presence of God. The Old Testament writers believed, and they, they, they believed that the raising of the dead was the privilege for the son because he gives life to whom he pleased to give it to. But we have to remember, the son can do nothing by himself. His will, his pleasure, his choices are so completely at one with the Father that it is no less true to say that the crucial decisions are his. Unlike Elijah, Jesus is no mere instrument of the divine power, but he is the power, the divine power. So Jesus is saying, I'm life. We see this in John 15. And and he says it right here at the end of 21. He says, says, whom he will. So it's Jesus' will, Jesus' choice. He's the one that comes to us. We see this in Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses. While we were dead, he preached peace to us. He brought life to us. But God, right? I'm totally butchering it. Go read Ephesians 2, right? In Ephesians 2, that's where we see it. This life is there. What is he saying? It's the same thing that Jesus says in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is not being ambiguous or subtle or light. He's coming in this case. It's like he's standing up. The courtroom is in silence listening, and I bet they're like gaping mouths like, what are you saying? Like they're kind of fuming inside as he starts to do this because he's making a declaration that can only be God's. The rabbis went on to teach that the only, there were three things that were God's, life in the womb, death, and I can't remember what the third one was, but it's not that important. But either way, the point is that all of those things, they, they believed wholeheartedly that there were things that were only God's to do, and Jesus is taking claim of all of them, saying, I'm doing them. He goes on. As if that wasn't enough, he goes to the fourth four, which moves the focus of the attention to the implications of the son's dependence. See, verse 22 says it this way. It says, For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. 
Now, this is a scary one because what he's doing is he's forcing every single person that's hearing that today and those that were hearing it back then to make a decision. If all of a sudden judgment now has been given to the son and the son is standing in front of him, then the way I interact with the son is, is a really important fact of my life. So you have to decide in that moment, are you going to believe Jesus is who he says he is and all these things are true of him, that this is where it is, or are you not? Because if you're wrong, just know that, that he's making the claim that God has given him the right to judge. The word judge is, is used, it's kind of unclear the way it's used in John. It's used all different ways. We see it in 318 that Jesus did not send to condemn the world. That's where it is, a negative sense. But here, it's an impartial valuation, but then in verse 24, it comes back to condemn. So judging can be not only just the judging the fruit, but also a condemnation judge. It's used both ways for Jesus. So, and in this text, we see it in 22 one way and 24 the other way. And so this is, he's saying he has the right to judge two things. One is your life today. And ultimately what he'll get to after you're dead, the judgment will be his. And all the scriptures teach that he is judge. He did not come to condemn, to judge the world, but he came in salvation. But yet he is the one who will do the condemnation at the end. In him, it's there. The meaning of judge very slightly, but ultimately here it's done this way. Jesus insists that the office of judge, whether in the present or at the last day, has been entrusted to him. What's interesting, hear, hear this on this. He says that life, I give life like Godly gives life but God has abdicated his responsibility of judge to me. So life is in God, life is in me, but I am the one who will judge. This is a big thing to understand, and this is one of those moments where I picture people standing up and running from the conversation, throwing tomatoes at him. If this was a courtroom, everyone yelling and the judge having, hang on, hold on. Because what he's saying now is he's saying that they have to deal with him. They don't get, not only is a life through him, but like the judgment of what their actions will be through him. And for them, their judgment was based on the religious systems that they held. And if they did these right, then they'd be okay. And Jesus is saying, no, you want life, it's through me. And you want to know where you're going to be judged, it's, it's through me. This is the statement he's making over and over again. This does not mean that Jesus will exercise his judgment independently from the Father. For even the judgment he exercises is a reflection of consistent determination to please the one who sent him. He is not operating outside of God, but God has given him this purpose. 23 and 24 kind of transition. Again, like I said, he just, God just gave us this sermon outline, so it's fantastic. 23 and 24 transitions to what it means for Jesus to be God and submitted to God. Ultimately, he says right here, he says, here it is kind of reasserted, 23 and 24 say this. It says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, if he hadn't offended everyone at this point yet, this was the kind of the nail in the coffin. There wasn't a single person in the Jewish religion that understood or didn't know the fact that all honor was only to go to God. We only honor God. To, to claim that honor should come to anything else would put you in form of idolatry, which is a sin and we cannot do. So Jesus says now, he says, no, no, no. The reason why I'm the judge, these things are happening. I give life is because God wants me to be honored. And if you don't honor me, you're not honoring the Father. 
This would have been so offensive to every single person there. The clear unity of the Father and the Son is forcefully indicated here by the fact that failure to give proper honor to, to Jesus is to fail to give honor to God. Which again, they had to, they had to answer, wait, 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 wait. Now, now not only are you saying you're the judge, but I can't honor God by my religious systems unless I honor, honor this man he sent. This doesn't make sense. But Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of Jesus' unique relationship, when, when God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to anyone, like he says in Isaiah 42 and 48, it's not compromised or diminished when divine honors are crowned to the Son. This is the, the most direct claim he can make. Because God has said, I, my honor should go to no one. So the only one that it would make sense for honor to go to is that who is equal, who is God. To give, to give honor to any man in place would be wrong. To give honor the way it's deserved to God, adoration to God can be done to Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, if you don't do it to me, you're not doing it to the Father. And he says, the way you do it is by hearing and believing, hearing the voice of Jesus, hearing me speak. And it's interesting, he goes into this kind of this end times theology section here of hearing his voice in the grave. We'll get there right now. But he, but he ultimately is saying, I, I'm the one that you need to believe in. Hear my voice in this life and you will pass from death into life. And then you'll hear my voice again in the resurrection. And that's essentially what he's doing here. He's claiming, he's making all kinds of claims. He's laying it all out right here. Like we could literally just end this book right here and be like, okay, we know it. We're good to go. Move on. Verses 25 through 29, he, he starts it with talking about the dead here. He says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. So the here, but not yet, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Dead is, is dead bodies. This is that Ephesians 2 I'm talking about. Hearing the voice of Jesus. Hearing is believing in him. You are, you are brought to life. You were, you were dead and now you're alive. You were crucified with Christ, and now you're risen with Christ. You were dead and alive. It's spiritual life. But he goes on and talks about not just dead bodies, but the physical aspect of bodies. And that's what he says at the end of this, when he comes out and says, and verse 29, and come out, those who have done, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is saying, look, not only am I going to speak and breathe life into people that are walking around spiritually dead, but I'm going to bring life into the resurrection, both for the good and for the evil. Now, what is he saying here? He's not saying that it is because you have to work out your faith kind of works-based. He's saying something drastically different here. Let me show you this. He says in verse 26, the four is important because it explains how the son can actually exercise this divine judgment. Verse 26 says this. It says, For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So how can Jesus do this? Because Jesus has life in himself. We've already talked about this. One scholar says it this way. He says, It is because, like God, he has life in himself. God is self-existent. He is always the living God. 
Mere human beings are derived creatures. Our life comes from God, and he can remove it as easily as he gave it to us. But to the Son and the Son alone, God has imparted life in himself. This can't mean that the Son gained this prerogative only after the incarnation, because the beginning of the chapter, verses 1-4, says, In him was life. The impartation of life in himself to the Son must be an act belonging to eternity of a peace with the eternal Father-Son relationship, which itself, which is itself of a peace with the relationship between the Word and God. Why? Because in the beginning, Jesus was there. So, so Jesus has life. How can he do these things? How can he do this? Because he has life. Because he has life the same way that God has life. And then just to kind of seal his case, to kind of silence the, the jury, maybe quiet down the courtroom a little bit, he changes his language and stops using the son and goes and uses one that would have been a complete divine messianic term. And he says, the son of man. Every person there goes to Daniel chapter 7. They know Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. They know how it's speaking of the coming Messiah. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is the son of man who receives the kingdom and its total dominion. By claiming the son of man, this, this, this term is used 15 times or 14 times in the gospel of John, 80 times in all gospels. It's one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself over and over again. And every time he said it, every good Jewish person would go, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're claiming the title that is the Messiah. The one that every single one of those people, they were upholding the festivals to remember God so that they wouldn't miss the coming of the Messiah and yet they wanted to be opposed to him because they wouldn't deal with Jesus. They wanted to go around Jesus. And John, has, inspired by God, made it absolutely clear. Life comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. You want to get to the Father, you have to go through Jesus So then he says, how can I do this? How is life this way? Well, there are those that are going to be experiencing my voice and life from the spiritually dead to the spiritually alive. And then they will die, their death. And there will be a second coming, the resurrection. And at that moment, all will hear my voice. All dead, all those in the tombs will hear my voice. And they will raise to the resurrection of life, the resurrection of, of judgment. And this is what he's saying. He's saying it this way. He's saying, um, a scholar said it way better than I'll just read his. He said, the spiritually dead who hear the voice of the Son of God in the days of their flesh are raised by him to life will hear that voice again, calling them to enter upon the fullness of the resurrection life for the kingdom of glory. Similarly, those who are deaf to the voice of the Son of God in life must in the end respond to that voice and the rise to hear the word of condemnation pronounced upon them. The resurrection of the last day reveals the decisions that each has made in his life. The works of good and evil alluded to in verse 29 flow from the acceptance or rejection of the word of the Redeemer, Revealer, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is saying, look, your life will show it. John is not making a case for, for works-based salvation. That's not what he's doing because in honesty, in all honesty, it's kind of interesting that he even says this because he's speaking to a lot of people that are struggling with works-based religion. 
But what he's saying is saying, look, your life, the works that you do will either be that of life in Jesus or that of death in this world. You can't do it. You were created by Jesus beforehand to do good works. You live those out. John goes on in chapter 6, verse 29. He will insist that the work of God is this. You want to know what the work of God is? Believe. Believe in the one he sent. Believe in Jesus. That's the work that needs to be done. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, hey, just believe one time real quick in youth camp and then live a life that has no marking of that. Nowhere in Scripture. We see all over, all over Scripture, all over the New Testament, the frequent message that, that human action is a litmus test of human commitment. Our actions will show the life that is in us. Not that we do things to extend or to create life. We operate in the life that is in us. We see that all over Ephesians 2.10, Philippians 2.12, Philippians 3.17, 2 Timothy 3, James 2, 1 John, like all over. Even Jesus in the test, be talking about the goats and the sheep, says that their works will be the differentiation. We see that in Matthew chapter 25. Revelations 20 talks about the judgment seat. All of that is going to look at the changed heart and the actions that pour out of the changed heart. The only way we can do it is because his spirit is indwelling in us once we surrender our lives to Jesus to walk out these things so that we can obey and love God. This is what it means. This is what he's saying. He's not trying to say that salvation is based on good works. No. The Gospels make it so clear over and over and over again that men enter eternal life when they believe in Jesus Christ, but the life they live form the test of faith that they profess. We see this in Hebrews, persevere to the end. Live this life out. Then Jesus switches and he does something here, and this is kind of the beginning of what next week is. He changes from his statement, kind of ends it real quickly, and then goes to the witnesses of himself. And then at the end of it, it's really funny, instead of speaking about this or trying to defend himself, he starts going on the attack and like puts the jury and everyone else in the room on, on the, the hot seat, so to say. But there's a really unique and beautiful and profound change that we have to catch in verse 30. We have to catch this. Everywhere that Jesus has been speaking has been in the third person up to this point. The Son, the Son, the Son, Himself, 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 the Son of Man. And then look what verse 30 says. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment, because I seek not my will, but the will of Him who sent me. Eight times in the English, nine times in the Greek, in this 30-word sentence, He changes it to the first person. What is He doing? It's almost like He's standing up and saying, I've been sent and I'm here now. Let's go. Because He knows what's going to happen. He's not, he's not confused. He's not dumbfounded on what he just said and now, now the, the issue of Sabbath is long gone and now blasphemy and all these other things are in place. He just steps in and says, okay, it's me. I'm the judge. I'm the one that brings life. I'm the one that's doing the Father's will. I, 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 I. Jesus makes the claim, says, I, I'm it. So this is why it's absolutely ludicrous, ridiculous, and pointless for us to try and say that Jesus is just a good man. Or he's just a prophet like some other religions do because you have to deal with the fact that he just proclaimed that he is who God says he is and he is God himself. He's worthy of all honor. In fact, you can't not honor him because you will not be honoring God. He's the one that will judge you both in condemnation and your fruit. He's the one that will bring life to us. So the question has to be begged. We have to answer this. Who is Jesus to you? Who's Jesus? Jesus has to be answered. Are you are you settled in this? 
And the reason why I ask is that maybe many of you are like, oh, well, I've been in the church forever. That's great. But many of us think we move on from Jesus. Like, okay, I, I know who Jesus is. Now I just need to learn everything else I can here. And if all the knowledge you're taking from the scripture, no matter where it is, from front to back, if it is not pointing you back to Jesus, we got a problem. It's just knowledge then. If the life you're living is a display of yourself and not Jesus, we got a problem. Because we are to show Jesus to this world. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been risen with Christ. Now you should see Jesus in me, not me. So who is Jesus to you? Jesus makes ultimate claims for himself here. And, and this is, I mean, about as, as crazy as it can be. He goes on a little bit further and says something pretty crazy. He says in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 9, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. does not get any clearer than that. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. That's a, that's a profound claim. And, and C.S. Lewis called, you know, Lord Lunatic Liar, right? We got, we got to decide which one he is because if any one of these aspects aren't true, if he's not the judge, if he's not the giver of life, if he's, not, if he's not the one that's perfectly loved by the Father, if any one of those things aren't true, then all of it's undone. You can't take a portion of him. So if you are Jesus' light in your life, if Jesus is just kind of a homeboy and a friend in your life, you've missed the entirety of who he is. He is Lord, worthy of all adoration and honor. If Jesus is some king that's distant from you that you can't touch and you're afraid of getting near, you, you've missed it entirely because Jesus wants a relationship with you. He came to you. He chose you. If you think you're here, walking this life and, and doing these things and you just happen to, to make a choice to be here, no, if you don't believe in Jesus, he is pursuing you right now. Surrender your life to him. If you're missing peace, well, the peace that surpasses all understanding comes in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling to obey, well, remain in Jesus as he remains in the Father. If you're struggling to understand, well, all knowledge comes down from above. Pure and undefiled wisdom comes from above. It all centers on Jesus. So who is Jesus to you? See, good deeds, the way that I live my life, the way that you live our life, reveals the presence or absence of salvation, but does not produce it. The life you live is going to reveal the salvation you have in Jesus, but it's definitely not going to produce it. So if you're trying to work it out that way to try and make yourself acceptable to God, it's never going to produce that. The only way that you will walk in those good deeds, the only way that you will live in those good deeds is because you are already regenerate in your heart. So the issues in your marriage, Jesus can fix them. The issues in your life, the fears you're running with, Jesus can fix it. Why do we move on from him? The band's going to come up and we're going to sing and worship him with our, with our voices. Such statements belong to someone who is either God or completely insane. You don't get a, a half step with Jesus. You don't get a partial step with Jesus. You either crown him as the Lord that he is, as the king, the life giver, the judge, so you can hear his voice and believe, or you live your life as you being your king and ultimately just know you will hear his voice again. 
And if it's not with him, it'll be one of condemnation. And I, I urge you, I plead with you, if you are here today and you have not professed following in Jesus, you're, you're concerned or you're moving on, I would plead with you to give your life to him. There is no one greater. And if you're here today and you realize, man, my life is just marked by religion, well, even Jesus himself says, many on that day when I come will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do blah in your name? Did I not attend church? Did I not do awanas? Did I not serve? And did I not give money? And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Who is Jesus to you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for giving him to me. I thank you for seeking me out. I thank you for while I was dead, you breathed life into me. Nothing I was earning, nothing I deserved, all a testament of your grace and love. And Father, because you have displayed that love to me, I desire so badly to walk in step with your spirit to, to show you the love back in obedience. For the individuals that are here today that have realized that they've tried to move on from you, God, I pray that you just yank them back into your presence. Yeah, for the people that have gotten lost in, in theology and, and thinking they know better than you and that theology is taking them further and further and further away from you, God, would you just yank whatever chain needs to come to pull them back to you? God, for the individuals that are here that have been going through the motions or the ones that have never proclaimed your name, I pray that you'd wreak havoc on their hearts and draw them to you as a loving father would, as only you could. And so, God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for life. I thank you for knowing that on my, out of my tomb, I will be brought into the resurrection of life and not condemnation. Father, we thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Forgive us for, for trying to fit you into some box that would fit in our minds because it just doesn't make sense, Lord. And God, however we have not been honoring Jesus, I pray that you drop us to our faces before you in adoration and honor to Jesus Christ as our King, as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our friend, as our co-heir, as our brother. It's in his magnificent, glorified, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.